Good evening and welcome to our worship service. We're very grateful for your presence. As Thomas said a moment ago, our numbers have been down today. Uh, well, most of our young people were gone away for the weekend, and we're glad to have them home, and we appreciate the opportunity that was before them to spend time away, and we hope and trust that their time spent together was profitable, that they learned much and enjoyed a great deal of fellowship and fun with one another. Tonight we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Before we begin, I do want to mention that at the conclusion of our service tonight, I will have a copy of the lesson for you. And one of the reasons that I've made copies of the lesson tonight, I have a number of quotations and it's just not, uh, it's not going to be possible for you to write down all of the material that I'm going to put before you tonight because we do have to move at somewhat of a rapid pace and so... I just want you to know that there will be a hard copy of the lesson tonight, and if we run out, we can, we can certainly make more. But we're going to be looking at Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. And tonight I want us to think about, for just a moment or two, the theme, Why I Believe Instrumental Music in Worship is Sinful. I think that it's incumbent on all of us who are members of the body of Christ to know what we believe and why we believe it. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that we are to sanctify the Lord God in our heart and that we are to be ready to give an answer or a defense to every man that asks us of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. And so we ought to be able to respond in a positive way to those who ask us what we believe and then why we believe it. And when it comes to the question surrounding instrumental music in worship to Almighty God, we need to know what the Bible has to say. Now, I would, I would say at the onset of our study tonight that really when you begin to look at this issue, the burden of proof is on those who use the instrument. In other words, they ought to be the ones to defend why they use it. Typically, we feel as if we are boxed into a corner and that we have to be able to defend why we do not use the instrument. Well, I believe that we can defend that, and I believe that we should be able to. But nonetheless, to those of our religious friends and neighbors who use the instrument, they ought to be able to provide scriptural reasons why they use the instrument. And so I would just say at the onset of our study tonight, when somebody asks you why you do not use an instrument in worship to God, turn it back and ask the question to them, why do you use it? Can you give me some solid reasons biblically why you use that? There are two things I want to accomplish in our study tonight. Number one, I want us to take a historical perspective of this issue. And then we're going to look at a scriptural perspective. Now granted, ultimately, the weight of evidence that we're going to be looking at is scriptural because Whatever we say, whatever we do, we want it to be in compliance with the will of God. The song that we sang a moment ago, whatever we do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Well, Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that simply means to do it by his authority. And so we want to make sure that whatever we do, whatever practice we engage in, that it is in harmony with what the Bible has to say. By way of historical perspective, 
The first thing that I want us to think about for just a moment is simply this. What does history say about musical instruments in worship to God? I have a number of quotations that I want to read to you tonight. As I said a moment ago, it, it would simply be impossible for you to, to write down all of the information that I'm going to be putting before you in this particular juncture or this particular point in our study. But if you will uh, pick up a copy of the lesson at the conclusion of our study tonight, then you can go home and dig deeper and study uh, more in depth regarding this subject. The first person I want to cite is a man by the name of James McKinnon. And he wrote a dissertation for a Ph.D. degree as, well, it was actually a requirement for his studies at Columbia University in 1965. Mr. McKinnon, his background, religiously speaking, was Catholicism. And here's what he had to say. Early Christian music was vocal. He went on to say, the strongest possible evidence indicates they were not used in the early church. And what he's talking about here is simply instrumental music and worship to God. And he's saying that instruments were not a part of the apostolic church. He also suggests that the first instrument used in worship to God was the organ. And that then it was later followed by the trumpet. A second individual that I want to cite for you tonight, a man that most of us are familiar with, an individual by the name of John Calvin. And he was, he was, as you know, one of the founders of the Presbyterian Church, along with John Knox. And in his commentary on Psalm 33, he writes, Musical instruments in celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of lamps, and the restoration of the other shadows of the law. The Papists, therefore, have foolishly borrowed this, as well as many other things, from the Jews. And when he makes reference to the Papist, he's talking about Catholicism. And so here you have one man who has, has ties to the Catholic Church, and he says that when you go back and look at the Apostolic Church, that is, the church that was, that was originated or that begun in the first century, they did not use the instrument. And then you have John Calvin, one of the founders of the Presbyterian Church, and he sets forth his protest against the usage of the instrument in worship to God. And then also a man by the name of Adam Clark. Some of you may have his commentaries, a very helpful commentary set. Adam Clark was a Methodist, and he too was against the usage of instrumental music in Christian worship. And here's what he had to say in his commentary on 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 25. He said, The whole spirit, soul, and genius of Christian religion are against this. And those who know the church of God best and what constitutes its genuine spiritual state know that these things have been introduced as a substitute for the life and power of religion. And where they prevail most, there is least of the power of Christianity. Away with such portentous baubles from the worship of that infinite spirit who requires his followers to worship him in spirit and in truth. For to no such worship are those instruments friendly. And so here you have 
Another individual, another very renowned man of days gone by, a Methodist, who voiced his opposition to the instrument in worship to Almighty God. And then a fourth writer that I want to cite for you, a man by the name of, of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was probably one of the greatest Baptist preachers of his day. He lived during the 1800s. He preached in London, England. And he preached at a place that, uh, well, he preached for Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle. And here's what he had to say in his com commentary on the 42nd Psalm taken from the treasury of David. Listen, if you would, to what he suggests. David appears to have had tender, a tender remembrance of the singing of the pilgrims. And assuredly, it is the most delightful part of worship and that which comes nearest to the adoration of heaven. What a degradation to supplant the intelligent song of the whole congregation by the theatrical prettiness of a quartet, the refined niceties of a choir, or the blowing off of wind from inanimate bellows and pipes. We might as well pray by machinery as praise by it. Now let's put this in perspective for just a moment. When you go back and look at what these men have written, first of all, we have somebody who is, who is rooted in the Roman Catholic Church. And based on his research, and one writer says that McKinnon did just a very thorough study of this subject. And his conclusion was instrumental music was not a part of the early church. And then you have somebody from the Presbyterian church. And they're saying that instrumental music in worship to God was not a part of New Testament worship in the first century. They were against it. And then we have a Methodist. And not just any Methodist, but somebody that was looked upon very favorably by those in the religious community, certainly within the Methodist church. Adam Clark voiced his opposition against instrumental music in worship to Almighty God. And then you think about Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon, as I said a moment ago, was probably one of the greatest Baptist preachers of his day. And Spurgeon, his own record, is saying, I am against it. Now, I purposefully did not quote anyone associated with the Church of Christ, and there's a reason for that. Because I don't want somebody saying, well, you're biased, or the people that you're quoting are biased. I wanted to introduce to you individuals outside the body of Christ who voiced their opposition to the instrument. And the reason in doing that is to let you know that, that instrumental music, when you go back and look at it from a historical perspective, there were giants in the denominational world that were against the usage of the instrument in worship to Almighty God. And look at how, look at how it has filtered down into what we call today modern-day Protestantism. Why, everybody uses it. But that does not in no way make it right, but nonetheless, people use it. What do you think somebody would say if you were to stand up, for example, at Bellevue Baptist Church, and to say in the midst of some 
six to 8,000 people that Char Charles Spurgeon, who was one of the greatest Baptists of his day, said that what you're doing is wrong. What do you think they'd say to that? It ought to get somebody's attention. It ought to get our attention. When we say that we are against the usage of the instrument, what we need to understand is we are not alone. There are people in days gone by, and there are people today, that still do not believe that the instrument is acceptable in worship to Almighty God. Now, I know that there has been a softening, even among those within the Church of Christ, towards the usage of the instrument. Some today are saying it is not a salvation issue. Well, what I want to suggest to you today is this. The usage of mechanical instruments of music in worship to God is sinful. It is not just sinful, it is a salvation issue. Now that's what the Bible says. And so having said that, let's look from a, from a scriptural perspective at what, what the Bible has to say about mechanical instruments in worship to God. There are really three things that I want us to think about from this vantage point. The first thing that I want to call your attention to is the principle of authority. Because when it's all said and done, really, all that matters is what does the Bible say. Because the Bible, as you well know, is to be our guidebook. It is to be the rule whereby we live in compliance with the will of God. Now, there are a lot of people in our world today, and sadly there are many people in the church of our Lord today, that know nothing or little about what the Bible teaches. But when we talk about this principle of authority, there are several verses that we need to think about. The first is found in Matthew 28, verse 18, where Jesus said, All authority or all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. In Matthew chapter 17, we read of Jesus going up into a mountain, and the Bible says that he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. A voice rang forth from heaven. And that voice that rang forth from heaven was God the Father. And God the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And so when you link Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, to Matthew 28, verse 18, you find that Christ has been vested with all authority. And whatever he says, we are to honor, we are to adhere to. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, at verse 6, Paul said, we are not to go beyond that which has been written. In other words, we're not to go beyond what the Bible says. Now, we understand the principle of not adding to or taking from the inspired scriptures. And that, that principle really runs throughout both the Old and New Testaments. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, at verse 2, Moses said, You shall not add unto my word, neither shall you diminish aught from it. In Proverbs chapter 30 at verse 6, the writer said, Add not unto my word, lest he reprove you and you be found a liar. And then in Revelation 22, 18 and 19, John, in closing out the record of inspiration, sets forth the prohibition against adding to or taking from God's word. Now somebody might say contextually, he's talking about the book of Revelation, and I would agree with that. But again, when you look at 
this principle, it runs throughout both the Old and New Covenants. And so the bottom line is simply this. We are not at liberty to tamper with what God has set forth. We are to honor the authority of Christ. Now in Colossians 3 verse 17, Paul said, Whatsoever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means to do it by His authority. So whatever we do, whatever realm it may be, whatever realm we may be talking about, we need to honor the authority of Christ. We're talking about worship here. And so when it comes to the worship of Almighty God, we want to make sure that our worship is in compliance with His will. In John 4, verse 24, Jesus said, God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is the aim of our worship. He is the one before whom we bow down and worship every first day of the week. The psalmist said in Psalm 95, verse 6, O come, let us worship. Let us bow down, kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And so we are entering into the presence of Almighty God. The word worship means acts of reverence paid to deity. We are giving God that which He is rightfully due. Now Jesus said, God is spirit. They that worship Him, those who worship Him, that would be the assembly, those of us who belong to the body of Christ. We are the ones that engage in worship. We are not the audience. God is the audience. And I think that in our day and time, we've confused that. We have the idea that we come to worship to be entertained. Many people have that, that mentality, that mindset. There are many that come to the worship assembly and they have the idea that they are the audience. Well, we're not the audience. God is the audience. Jesus said, God is spirit, and they that worship him, that's the assembly, must worship him. That's the absolute. When we go before God in worship, it must be in spirit and in truth. When we talk about worshiping God in spirit, that means we're worshiping him with the right attitude. The heart and the mind is in tune with what is being said and done. When we sing, we need to think about what we're singing. We need to understand the words that we're singing. When we pray to God, when somebody leads us in corporate prayer, we need to be praying along with that person. Why? Because we're worshiping with the right attitude. That is, we're not daydreaming. We're thinking about what's going on. We are engaged. Our mind is mentally engaged in the various acts of worship. And there are five acts of worship. And then... Jesus said, not only are we to worship Him in spirit, but also in truth, that is, by His authority. In John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So that means that when we worship God, it must be in truth. Well, what does the Bible have to say about, about this question relating to the instrument? Well, first of all, it has to do with a principle of authority. Now, I want to set before you a couple of thoughts. When you look at at the scriptures. There are what could be called generic commands and then there are those specific commands. And for the sake of time, I'm going to call your attention to a couple of illustrations. The first has to do with Noah and the ark. In Genesis chapter 6, you recall God said that every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. And so he said, I'm going to destroy man whom I've created, both man and beast. God was going to destroy the world by means of a flood. But the Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so he made a statement 
to Noah concerning the salvation of his family. In Genesis 6 verse 14, he told him to build an ark. Now, if we were to look at Genesis 6 verse 14 from a generic standpoint, had God said unto Noah, Noah, build an ark of wood. Noah then would have been at liberty to use any, any kind of wood. Is that not correct? Could he not have used some other type of wood or any type of wood that he so chose? Whether it be pine or cypress or whatever, oak, he would have had the prerogative to use any, any kind of wood. But God said, make thee an ark of gopher wood. The command was not generic, but rather it was specific. So when God said unto Noah, Noah, I want you to build an ark of gopher wood, that excluded every other kind of wood. Noah was not at liberty to use any other kind of wood that God had created, but rather he was to use exclusively gopher wood. Now in verse 22, the Bible says, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. What's, what's Moses saying in looking back on this account? He's saying that God instructed Noah to build an ark of gopher wood. He set forth the dimensions of that ark. And Noah complied with the commands given by Almighty God. In other words, he used gopher wood. He built that ark to scale. All right, let me give you a second illustration. Let's talk for a minute about worship. Now, generically speaking... God could have said, I want you to make music. If God had said to make music, that could have encompassed, it could have encompassed singing or playing. But God specifically said what? God said to sing, didn't he? In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another. And then he says that we are to sing, that we are to engage in singing and the singing of psalms. Singing, he said, with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In Ephesians 5 verse 19, Paul said, Speaking to yourselves one to another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. When God said to sing, that excluded everything else. And so we talk about generic and specific commands. And then let me give you another illustration. And really this is, we, we talk about the silence of the scriptures. And sometimes people will say, well, God never said, thou shalt not use an instrument. Go back to the Old Testament and look, if you would, at Deuteronomy chapter 10. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 at verse 8, God separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to minister in the name of the Lord, and to bless in His name. All right? God separated the tribe of Levi. Levites... The Levites were a priestly tribe, were they not? All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. 
Only those from the Levitical tribe could function in the capacity of a priest. In other words, they were the ones that ministered before God in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Well, when God said in the long ago to separate the tribe of Levi, that they may bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, he did not have to name those other tribes. The children of Israel did not have to have God in the long ago say, all right, the other 11 tribes are not at liberty to function in this capacity. Why? Because of the silence of the scriptures. Now, in our, in our modern day, if I were to tell you, if I were to ask you today, all right, go to the store and buy me a suit. Well, you could go and, and buy any color of suit you so chose. But if I were to tell you to go to the store and buy me a navy suit, well, what does that mean? That means that any other color is excluded, does it not? If I were to ask you to go and buy me an automobile, well, you can go buy any kind of automobile you wanted. But if I said, I want you to go and buy me a Ford, that excludes every other kind of automobile. You don't have to have me say, now, I don't want you to buy a Chevrolet. I don't want you to buy a Toyota. I don't want you to buy a Honda. No, I want you to buy a Ford. We understand that. Now, let me ask this question. Why is it we can understand that in our society today but then when we come over into the realm of religion and we talk about singing and the instrument, we have difficulty comprehending and making that correlation. You see, the fact of the matter is we have to respect the principle of authority. There's a second thing I want to call your attention to. And that is the principle of a pattern. The Bible is our pattern. When you begin to examine what we call the Bible, you'll understand that there are, there are two covenants that are spoken of. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we have that period of the patriarchs. And then we have the Law of Moses. When Christ died on Calvary's cross, He instituted a New Covenant. Today, you and I, we are under what is called the law of Christ, Galatians 6, verse 2. It is called the perfect law of liberty, according to James 1, verse 25. It is called the law of liberty in James chapter 2, at verse 13. When we talk about a pattern, there are verses that underscore the importance of this principle. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul, in writing to Timothy, said, Hold fast the form of or pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That word form is a word that simply means a pattern. And Paul is saying that we have a pattern and he's telling Timothy in the long ago, Timothy, you adhere to this pattern. You honor it. You submit to it. In Romans chapter 6, when Paul wrote to the saints in Rome, in verse, well, in Romans 6, verse 17, he said, But God be thanked that whereas you were the servants of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine delivered unto you. That word form there simply means a pattern. We talk about salvation. Is there a pattern whereby we are to be saved by Almighty God? The answer would be yes. We understand that. Well, in the same, by the same token, when we talk about our worship to God, there is a pattern that we are to honor. Think for a moment about what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. 
He said, but, but if I tarry long, that you may know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul wrote Timothy and told him that the things which had been recorded were recorded so that he and others would know how to behave themselves in what? In the house of God, the church of the living God. How would you and I know the organizational structure of the church if we did not have a pattern? The answer would be we wouldn't. How would we know how to be saved if we did not have a pattern? Well, the answer would be we would not know. How would we know how to worship Almighty God if we did not have a pattern? Well, again, the answer is we wouldn't. We would have no idea. But God has stipulated a pattern. He's given us a pattern. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, the writer takes us back to the Old Testament, and really he's talking about the tabernacle that was, that was built or erected during the, during the lifetime or during the days of Moses. And note, if you would, the latter part of verse 5, God said, and this is a quotation going back to Exodus 25, verse 40, God said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Well, what is a pattern? A pattern is a blueprint, is it not? Well, we use, we use a blueprint to build a building, to build a home. By the same token, we use a blueprint in order to know how to serve God acceptably, in order to know how to worship God acceptably, in order to know how to stay saved before Almighty God. Sometimes when we, when we talk about this, this subject, our, our religious friends will oftentimes go back to the Old Testament and they'll cite the Psalms and they'll sometimes say, well, did not David in the Psalms encourage people to use instruments of music in worship to God? And the answer would be, yes, he did. But you see, what we have to understand is we're not living under that covenant today. The law of Moses was given to the children of Israel, according to, De to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. When Christ died on Calvary's cross, that old law was taken out of the way. In Colossians 2, verse 14, Paul said, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, taking it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. If you're going to go back and you're going to say that David in the Psalms encouraged those people in his day and time to use instruments of music in worship to God, and because he legislated that under the Old Covenant, we today can use it, then we might as well bring in animal sacrifices because they did the same. The fact of the matter is we are under a different covenant. And when you, when you talk to people, and I in no way mean this, in an arrogant or sarcastic manner. But sometimes the best argument that somebody can come up with is appealing to the book of Psalms. If that's the best argument you have, you don't have an argument. That's just a fact of the matter. A third principle. It is the principle of Solo. And really, this has been a battleground in, over the years. The Greek word solo is found five times in the New Testament. Four times that word is translated sing. One time it is translated to make melody. 
In Ephesians 5, 19, Paul talks about making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Well, sometimes people want to take that and say that here you have authority for using instruments of music in worship to Almighty God. The word simply means to pluck, to twang, to pull, to cause to vibrate. Here's the question. What is the instrument that God is authorizing those of us who live under the new covenant to pluck or to play? It's the heart. Go back with me for just a moment. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Look at Colossians 3 for just a moment. I think it's good for all of us to just read Colossians 3 verse 16 together. Paul said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So here we are to sing with grace in our hearts to whom? To God, to the Lord. Now back up and read Ephesians 5 verse 19 again with me. In Ephesians 5 verse 19, Paul said, speaking to one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. What then are we to make melody upon? The only thing that I know the Bible authorizes us to make melody upon is the human heart. When we lift our voices in praise to God by the avenue of singing, we are fulfilling the command of Ephesians 5, verse 19, and Colossians 3, verse 16. You see, nowhere in the New Testament did any apostle ever authorize the usage of mechanical instruments of music in worship to God. It was never authorized. It was never sanctioned. It was never commanded. It was never practiced. Not one time. I said just a moment ago, the instrumental music was not brought into quote-unquote Christian worship until about, until about the third century. Well, if that's the case, it was some 200 years after the Church of Christ began. Do you not think that God in His infinite wisdom, do you not think that God had he wanted us to use the instrument, would not have so dictated in his word. The fact of the matter is, he said nothing about it in the scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 2, the Hebrew writer said, In the midst of the congregation, I will sing praise to you. When we engage in the simplistic acts of New Testament worship, that being singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, listening to the Word of God as it is proclaimed, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, partaking of the Lord's Supper, Acts 20, verse 7, the giving of our means, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, praying to Jehovah God, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, we are complying with the blood-sealed covenant of the Son of God. How does Jesus legislate Worship to Almighty God through His will. If you want to make sure that your estate 
is distributed in accordance with your wishes at your death, what do you do? You write out a will, do you not? Well, Jesus left us his last will and testament. Hebrews 9, verse 15. It is the blood-sealed covenant of the Son of God. Everything that, we need to learn, everything that we need to know about life and godliness, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, everything has been revealed. That includes our worship to God. And so, if somebody were to ask me, why do you not use instruments of music in worship to God? I would simply say this. Historically speaking, the early church did not use instrumental music. It is a fact of history. And there are those outside the body of Jesus Christ who would, who would agree with that statement. Secondly, I would suggest that the scriptures in no way under any circumstances permit us to use instruments in worship to God. Let me just also add very quickly before closing. When we talk about worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and we talk about using or not using the instrument, that means we do not clap. That means we do not hum. That means we do not simulate some kind of musical instrument to Almighty God. We sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. In our singing, we teach and admonish one another in songs, in hymns, and spiritual songs. That's, that right there is the precedence. And what we want to do is make sure that we follow the Word of God. Jesus said, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, him I will liken unto a wise man that built his house upon the rock. He said, the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon the rock. Wise people, whatever the generation, will honor God's holy word. Whatever we do in word or deed, let us do it all in the name of the Lord. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. What would you need to do to come to Christ? Well, the Bible says, first of all, you need to believe that he is the Son of God. Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins, John 8, verse 24. Jesus also said, if you die in your sins where I am, there you cannot come. Do you believe in Jesus as the Son of God? Would you be willing to repent of every sin, as Peter said in Acts 2, verse 38? Would you be willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Acts 8, verse 37? Would you be baptized or immersed in water for the washing away of your sins, Acts 22, verse 16? If you'll do that, the Lord will add you to the church, Acts 2, 47. And if you'll live faithfully until death, the promise is the crown of life. Revelation 2.10. Maybe you're here tonight, you're not faithful to the cause of Christ. Maybe your life is not what it ought to be. Could we encourage you to come home to the Lord tonight? Did you know that James said, confess your faults one to another, pray one for another. Could we pray with you and for you tonight as we stand and sing?